There's a much better way to live than being guided by your feelings. Here's Pastor Ed Taylor to touch on that. We cannot live our lives by feelings. It will surely lead to disaster. One of the things about feelings that we have to remember that feelings don't always tell the truth. They're real. You have them. You can't just look at your feeling and go, I don't feel this way. Of course you do. And just saying you don't feel that way makes you feel it even more. You can't just like positive confess your way out of feelings. The reality is, is that you need to surrender them to the reality of the presence of God in your life and let God sort out how you feel because what you see is really not into the spiritual realm. What your eyes see is in the physical realm. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Some think they can sin and get away with it and forget the sinners reap what they sow. Others believe they can't turn to the Lord because of their sin. But where else can they go? Thanks for joining us for Abounding Grace, as we'll join Pastor Ed Taylor in a second. On today's broadcast, we'll see God's people waiting 20 years before repenting. Now, that's a long time. If we're wise, we won't wait and waste the years God has given us. Maybe there's some sin or idols that you need to drive out today. From 1 Samuel chapter 7, here is Pastor Ed. 1 Samuel chapter 7, continuing on our study. The last few chapters that we've looked at in 1 Samuel was focusing on the Ark of the Covenant. Israel had an approach at this time in their history that the Ark of the Covenant was like a good luck charm. And then it was taken in battle by the Philistines. And when the Philistines had it, God used it as a tool to teach them that he was the supreme one true God in every way. And because of God's judgment, they got rid of it and they sent it back to the hands of the children of Israel. They had set it up, you remember, to send it back. And uh, they got these cows. Then they separated from their calves. They were milk cows. They yoked them. Every single step was set up to make God a failure, that it couldn't be possible that they would go back. And then they said it this way. They said, you know, if, if, they do, if, it, if the ark doesn't get back, the milk cows don't get back, then, then we know it was just by chance. But if they do go back, then we know it was from God. And they set it up, of course, so that they wouldn't go back. But God superseded their human plans. And we really left off in chapter 6, just seeing how God totally took the plans of man and scattered them. But just for a way of context, let's pick up in verse 21 of chapter 6, really verse 20 of chapter 6. And the men of Bethshemus said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath Jiriam, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kirjath Jiriam came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So remember there was a great judgment because the, the ark came back. They did the right thing. They had a sacrifice. They celebrated. But then some men peeked in 
and God judged them because the Ark of the Covenant was to be revered and reverenced. And after God's judgment, he graciously stays with his people and he allows the Ark to be moved to another city for about another 20 years in the home of this man by the name of Abinadab, guarded by Eleazar. No more peaks. We're not going to peek into the Ark anymore. It causes too much pain. I mean, and I think that's the essence. While we didn't develop it last time, I think it's the essence of the difficulty of the consequences of sin. When when you face the consequences of sin, one of the lessons that we're to learn is not to return there. We're not going back there. And even if we have to set up a guard like Eleazar to make sure that even if you went to touch the ark, he'd slap your hand down and say, I'd rather have the, the pain of having my hand slapped than the consequence of losing my life. And sometimes the hand slap, if you will, is a Bible study or the words of a song, or a text message, or somebody calling you, or, or just taking you aside and sharing just, just what the Lord's put on their heart for you, we, we would rather have, well, I would rather have the pain of obedience than the pain of disobedience any day of the week. Now, verse 2 in chapter 7. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, 20 years, as we've mentioned. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all of your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, the Ark of the Covenant has been returned. And it is out of the enemy's hands. You could say the Ark of the Covenant becomes a picture of you where the world and the enemy and the flesh and even yourself mishandled you. But now you're out of the hands of the enemy. You belong to God. And here we have the Ark of the Covenant belonging to God. It is being treated properly. There is a new leadership now in this man Samuel, this miracle child. But having the ark in Jewish hands didn't automatically solve all of Israel's problems because there was still the heart issue of their idolatry. In those 20 years of relative peace, a new generation arises. And in this generation, they... Well, you're going to find in a moment that they're not happy with the current way that things are going. You know, you get settled in your ways or in the new generation, they think, you know, the old ways are not important to us. And change, any change, is really worthless without putting God first. And with this change, Samuel knew, and he calls the children of Israel as a strong leader and says, you need to put your false gods away. 
over and over and over again, not only the children of Israel, but you and I are called to put the false gods away. Now, we sort of laugh at something like that. We chuckle a bit. False gods? Idolatry? I'm not an idolater, some of you are thinking. I don't have little statues on my dashboard or in my room. I don't, I don't have a little Buddha statue in my front room and offer him old apples or whatever they offer him. You know, at the Chinese restaurants, you always come in and they got all this. What are they offering? It's like a plastic um, picture or a statue of Buddha. And they're offering him all these things that just sit there and rot. And you go, that's not me. I don't even go to restaurants like that. What are you talking about, Ed? I'm not an idolater. But unfortunately, the Jews gave themselves over to idols of wood and stone and metal. They adopted, listen, this is where idolatry comes from. They adopted the sinful culture that surrounded them. These were not the gods of Israel. They had one God, one true God. Where did these gods come from? Their culture. The people that they lived among. You see, we don't have carvings. We don't have statues We don't have idolatrous shrines. And for that, I say good. And if you do, get rid of them. Don't even mess around there. But you know, for us, in our culture, in our modern day, we have subtle and more attractive gods, little g, like houses and land and money and cars and boats and celebrities and jobs and ambition and position recognition and a whole host of idolatrous substitutes for worship of the one true God. Remember, idolatry could be defined very simply. And with this definition, we all have areas where we need to drive the idols out. Nobody's really immune to this at different stages in their life. And here would be a good definition. Anything in our lives that takes the place of God and demands our time, sacrifice, and devotion. Our time, sacrifice, and devotion that belong to God alone, it's an idol and must be cast out. It would be easy if it was just the asterisks and the Baals, but for us, the idolatry gets so carved into the culture, you know, we're so carved in and a part of the culture that we refuse to say that we're worshiping some of these things. We refuse to admit that that thing has become so important to you that you will choose it above God. That that person or that desire has so infiltrated your heart So that when God asks you for it, you refuse to admit that you even have it or that it's an issue. Idols of the heart are far more dangerous than idols in the temple. For if we had idols in the temple, we could just throw them away. But idols in the heart need to be ripped out and set aside. Jesus said it this way, listen, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, he said, After all these things the Gentiles seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And that's what we're seeing at Mizpah, a cleansing, putting away the foreign gods, the Ashtoreths, the Baals. Ashtoreths were goddesses of sex, and every form of that. Baals, well, it's, you know, there's different definitions of Baal, the god of the weather. Uh, they looked at Baal as the god that brought fan- financial success to their crops. It was a very important uh, central god of the Philistines. And it's interesting to consider Baal because according to the commentator Youngblood, he says this, and I quote, Baal was the god of fertility in the storm and was believed to be the son of Dagon. You remember Dagon? God's already dealt with that guy. 
I, I mean, it, it just, it's so comical to think of this statue falling down and having his head cut off and his hands cut off and then everybody running in and trying to prop it up and put it back together. Come on, come on, you gotta, you gotta put your hands back on, man. You need to put your head back on. What are we gonna do without you? And so Dagon uh, was, would be known to be the father of Baal and Ashtoreth, the goddess of love and fertility, vied for supremacy with Asherah, the mother god- goddess, and the consort of the god El. The association of Baal, Asherah, and the Ashtoreth with fertility particularly is expressed in depraved sexual ritual at the Canaanite shrines. They made him especially abominable in the Lord's eyes. See, God has already demonstrated his supremacy in his reign over Dagon. And I wonder how many times God has demonstrated his supremacy in our lives and we run backwards. We run away from. You know, because when you run to God, he's going to ask for more. Now, the reality is, is that when we were born again, he got all of us. That was the deal. The deal when we were born again was we've been purchased with a price. We are no longer our own. We are now the temple of God. We are the ownership of God. That was the deal. The deal when you and I confessed our sin and accepted the gift is, is receiving the gift of forgiveness and, under, and, and getting out from under the, the shame and the guilt of our past life. We said we, we accept the exchange, Jesus. We accept what you offered. We accept what you've done. We accept that only you could pay the price for our sins. We accept that you paid the price for my life. We accept that the value of our life was your blood. I mean, a lot of things take place when you confess Jesus as your Savior. And then after that, if you're not careful, slowly but surely, you'll take your life back, piece by piece. And one of the ways that happens is is you become Bible smart. And, and you and I, we start to learn the scriptures. We start to understand parts of the scripture. We, we see, especially in the New Testament, we begin to follow. We understand grace. Of course, when we start to understand grace, we really have to understand that grace is not a covering for sin. The Bible actually has to tell us that. You know why? Because God knows you. God knows me. Grace is such a glorious doctrine. The beauty of knowing that God has done it all. And, and he's done it all for me and it hasn't been my works and it hasn't and it's never gonna be my works. And we're like, oh, you have been so good to me. It's not my works, Jesus, but it's your finished work. And then you can go to the extreme and go way overboard and say, well, you know, with grace, then, well, with grace, I can pretty much do whatever I want if God's forgiven me. And if it's all about him, then I can just always come back because he'll forgive me. And, and you know, when I always, whenever I see someone living like that, I'll bring them to the passages of Scripture, like in Titus, where it says, hey, look, grace teaches you to deny ungodliness and live righteously in this ungodly world. Uh, you don't really understand grace if you think it's a covering for sin. And so as we've been born again, we tend to go backwards. And then the Lord is saying, no, no, you keep going forwards. Put away the idolatry. Put away the things that are taking my attention, your attention away from me, God would say. And notice verse 7 now. In the process, God has demonstrated his holiness, his judgment, his grace. You know, there have been some that lost their life, but there are many that haven't. God's presence is still with them. And it says, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went, again, went up against Israel. And isn't that the way it works? You, you get through a trial, you stand strong, and the enemy's right there to attack. The enemy is not satisfied with your progress, not happy with the progress that you're making, not happy with the fact that you and your wife and you and your husband are not talking, not, not, not satisfied with you being in the word of God and wanting to grow in the grace of God. And as soon as they found out that there was a cleansing and a purifying going on at Mizpah, of course the Philistines don't know that. All they know is there's a gathering and, and the children of Israel seem to be happy. Now we're going to go after them again. The enemy is relentless. 
the Philistines or any of the other enemies of the Bible are relentless. And when the children of Israel heard it, verse 7, they were afraid. It just, just one of the tactics of the devil is to get you into fear. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that you and I have not been given a spirit of fear, but a power and a sound mind. But here they are, they have, I mean, I mean, fear is a natural response and it's necessary in many different areas of our lives, but it also is very unnecessary and undermines our faith. And one of the places you want to watch out for fear is when the enemy is attacking, because then it can become so out of control in your life. The children of Israel were afraid. Human feelings are, well, I know I don't need to say this, but just bear with me. Human feelings are very fickle. You can have confidence in the Lord in one moment and in the next, very next breath, have your breath taken away and be fearful and then back and forth. That's why it's very, very important that we live by faith, not by feelings. Now, those of you that understand, those of you that are more feeling oriented, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's up and down, it's up and down. Sometimes it's more down than up and fear, while necessary, in some instances, can undermine our faith. They were very confident. You can look at it in chapter 4, verse 5. They were very confident going to battle before. And now here they are, very lacking confidence. And they were wrong, fearful, missing God. We cannot live our lives by feelings. It will surely lead to disaster. One of the things about feelings that we have to remember, that feelings don't always tell the truth. They're real. You have them. You can't just look at your feeling and go, I don't feel this way. Of course you do. And just saying you don't feel that way makes you feel it even more. You can't just like positive confess your way out of feelings. The reality is, is that you need to surrender them to the reality of the presence of God in your life. And let God sort out how you feel because what you see, what you see is really not into the spiritual realm. What your eyes see is in the physical realm. You know, in verse 9 it says, Samuel, now with the fear of the children of Israel, notice what Samuel does. Now Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. So one of the answers to fear is what? Worship. Not only worship, but sacrifice. Really worshiping God in the midst of fear, in the midst of spiritual attack, the midst of the enemy coming after you, making sure that there is a sense of worship. And Samuel cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. So not only was there a place of worship and a place of sacrifice, but it was also fear, is also a place of prayer, crying out. Now, it may not be you that's feeling the fear. It may be your friend that you need to cry out for them on behalf of them. You see it in their life, and they may not be in a position because of the paralyzing effects of fear and emotions. So here, on behalf of Israel, we need a Samuel in our life that will see a need, and on our behalf, say, give me one of those lambs. Here you go, Lord. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he had a sound effect or not. But it's good to have people in your life that will stand in the gap for you when you can't, when you're paralyzed by fear, when the enemies undermined your faith. And I love Samuel here. He's standing in the gap. 
It says in verse 10, Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. God fought, your, fought the battle. And isn't it true that the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will fight your battles. Now, if you want to fight your battles, God will let you. And taking a phrase from the world, good luck. God, if you want to fight the battles, God will allow you to fight the battles until you tire out, until you recognize your own weakness, till you see that you and I do not have the strength of victory within us. No matter how strong we are, no matter how smart we are, we, we are not able to fight for victory in our own strength. But the Bible says that we're more than conquerors through Christ who strengthen us. We know that the Bible says that we are always led in victory as we follow Jesus. He's our victor. And here, because of prayer, the fear and the intimidation and all that the children of Israel are going through were done with just a thunder. It's over. Brought, God brought confusion and they were overcome before Israel. And the men, verse 11, of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. So this gave them great, you know, confidence. They're confused. I, you know, I don't know what it looked like on the battlefield, but God's got, you have the sacrifice of Samuel, the prayer of Samuel, the answer of God, the thunder of God, the confusion God brought, the overcoming before Israel, that gave them confidence. They're no longer fearful and they're chasing them now. They're chasing the enemy away. How? As the Lord went before them. We don't want to go out ahead of the Lord. As the nation openly repents, Samuel offers a lamb to the Lord crying out on behalf of Israel. And the humility among the people of God right now is very attractive because humility is always attracted to God and man. There are times when people misunderstand humility, see it as a weakness, but a person is never stronger, a person is never stronger than when they respond humbly before God. That is Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. And Ed, at the close of today's program, you said, a person is never stronger than when they respond humbly before God. As you said, people often view humility as a weakness, but it's really a strength. Would you like to add to that? Yeah, Larry, you know, our culture doesn't value humility all that much. It values pride. It values arrogance. It values taking advantage of other people and climbing the corporate ladder and making sure you get all that you can. And it's all about me, myself, and I. We're in the selfie generation. But I'm telling you, God loves the humble. The Bible says that he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And so don't spend your time trying to make progress in this rat race of a world getting caught up in all the arrogance and pride of this world, but be a humble person. God will bless that in business and God will bless that in your home and God will bless that when you're out and about. He, he will be with you in your humility and you will have God on your side as you choose the humble route, as you choose to elevate someone else above yourself. Uh, it's not weakness at all. It's actually tremendous strength to trust God in the situation by humbling ourselves. And there's a promise attached, isn't there? If we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, he will lift us up. And so trust him today. Friend, if you'd like to hear today's message in its entirety, call and request Ebenezer Stones of Encouragement. 
CD copies are just $2, and we can be reached at 877-30-GRACE. Or go online to calvaryaurora.org, where you can access this message and more from 1 Samuel. We'd like to suggest adding a couple of apps to your phone or tablet. Look for the Calvary Aurora app and Grace FM Colorado app, available on all platforms. They're free and a great way to fill up on the teaching of the Word wherever you may be. Life as we know it can be a real grind. And at times, we're hit with battles and problems that can leave us stressed out and overwhelmed. Wouldn't it be nice to just let it go and embrace peace and real joy? It is possible, I'm glad to say, and Francois Fenelon points the way in his book, Let Go. So if you're struggling with a personal failure, a disappointment, or problem, be sure to request our featured resource, Let Go, and we'll gladly send you a copy for a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Thank you for remembering us in your prayers and giving to the Lord. Your gift, whatever the size, will serve to help us reach thousands with the message of Christ. And this would be such a great time to hear from you as we make plans for 2018 and beyond. Reach us toll-free at 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryaurora.org. We'll pick up where we left off in 1 Samuel tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. May God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel Aurora.